0: Welcome to Bedside Matters, a podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact all of us every single day. We'll hopefully give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. Uh, I'm Peter Tilden, one of your hosts. Anna Pacino is out today, but Dr. David Kipper is here. And David, we have a very special guest. Can I, may I introduce and then you'll take Please. it? Please. Yes, we do. Felicity Elfman is joining us. You've been a, a friend of David's for a long, long time, so I'll let David kind of take over here. And he, is, he does have the medical degree.
1: First of all, I'm very, very appreciative that Felicity agreed to join us. And I think there's some interesting things medically that we can talk about. And one of the things that we've been talking about from the beginning are how our genetics impact our lives and our families. I have had the pleasure of knowing Felicity for a while, and I know there are some genetic issues that run in her family. And I would like to start with that, if that's okay with you, Felicity.
2: Yes, let's talk about um, genetics and what you inherit from your mother and your grandmother and all that sort of stuff.
1: So one item that we've dealt with in our lives together has been breast cancer. And I know breast cancer can run in families. Breast cancer does have a direct lineage, uh, especially if you have one family member with it, if you have somebody in your family that's had breast cancer at a young age, that's a particular problem. But the genetics of breast cancer extend into a third-degree relative. So, it can be a cousin. doesn't have to be a parent or a sister. It can be a cousin. So, the genetics here are pretty strong. We all know about these bracket genes, and we know that there are some things that we can test for. But if You're comfortable. Why don't we talk a little bit about your family and your your story with this?
2: Sure. I am one of eight kids, seven of which are girls. So my mom and dad had seven girls and one boy. And two of my sisters have breast cancer. And David, you walked me through two cancer scares for myself, which your bedside manner, you just took such amazing care of me. It's been something that I've been aware of, and because of my two sisters, something that I've had to monitor closely.
1: There certainly are other things that can provoke breast cancers, and the percentage of people that have breast cancer from a family member is actually maybe 10, maybe 15 percent. So there are a lot of other people that get breast cancer. But if it is in your family, you do have a much higher likelihood for those of you that have relatives with breast cancer, don't be shy. Go in, get tested, get your mammograms, uh, get your ultrasounds. I would also encourage you all to get MRIs because you can miss a breast cancer on just doing a mammogram. I think I've shared this with, with everyone that my wife specifically had a breast cancer that was picked up on an MRI but was missed on a mammogram. So. The trifecta for diagnosing breast cancer and for getting your regular breast imaging is an MRI, a mammogram, and an ultrasound. Insurance companies are not generally very kind about paying for this, but if you're high risk, you might have better luck. And fortunately for Felicity, she's come out okay, but she's going to have to be continuously monitored for this. You can also be at risk, this is interesting, I think, if the first cancer in your family comes down at age 60, not not in your 40s or 50s, but if it comes down when you're older and postmenopausal, that is still a risk for all the younger members of the family. So pay attention to that. We dealt with another very interesting condition in your family. Well, that can also... I ask
2: you a question about that before you go on? Because I know for me, You have said that I should get a mammogram, and then six months later, an MRI, and then six months later, a mammogram, and I should do the ultrasound with the mammogram. Is that the sort of protocol that you would say for someone who's high risk? I mean, because it's always nice when someone goes, it's great to get an MRI, and you go, how often?
1: A very good question for you specifically, when we're monitoring somebody that has a known lesion that we're following that may not be cancer. I mean, there are other things that we find on these tests that are not cancer. So if someone's high risk and we're monitoring somebody for these other lesions, then imaging every six months is a really good idea. And then you can mix up which imaging study you want to do. If you have never had an identifiable lesion, and you're just doing this from ground zero, ground zero should be the trifecta, it should be the MRI, the ultrasound, and the mammogram. If all of those tests are fine, even though you're high risk, you can wait the year because, again, most of these are slow enough growing that you will you'll find it uh, a year later. But if you're being monitored for something that is suspicious, then you do have to break those tests up a
0: little bit. Can I ask something about what Felicity's system? In my mind, you're going this a trifecta but for the average woman who just goes for the mammogram and doesn't know how sensitive or non-sensitive is and it misses stuff that the DMR picks up what percentage is the mammogram like is it doing an 85% and missing 50 what's do we know the combination of the mammogram and the ultrasound
1: is very good it's very likely to pick things up I'm okay but there are tumors again that evade that and Again, in a family, my wife in particular, that has several family members that had breast cancer, she was certainly someone from the beginning that we needed to follow very regularly. And the majority of these cancers, Peter, to your question, will be picked up by a mammogram and ultrasound. But Peter, to your point, which is really interesting, Men get breast cancer. So for every 100 women that get a breast cancer, there's one man that will get a breast cancer. And they present a little differently. They usually present with a little nodule under the nipple. It can be a little further away, but they're usually something that they feel in the shower. They're not as excited to go get a mammogram. And nor will you ever speak to them again after you referred them for a mammogram. There you go. Because it's a very difficult test in a woman that has breasts. So if you're looking at a man that has very little breast tissue, and wow. you're squeezing that together, it's a really difficult procedure. But for men, if you have women in your family that have breast cancer, you are at a higher risk and vice versa for a woman. If you have a male in your family with breast cancer, you're at higher risk. So it's something that, that you really have to pay attention to.
2: David, how did you know that your wife needed to get an MRI? Was it just part of her yearly? Or was, were you sort of like, well, now that you're over 50? Or how, when did you begin?
1: The minute I met Chanel, I began with this because she had such a strong family history. And so originally, we did all three tests, and then I would mix and match, but every year I made sure she had at least a mammogram and an ultrasound, and every other year, I was actually doing her MRIs every 18 months. And in in between those 18 months, I was doing the other tests. But she was such a high risk that it was clear to me that uh, we needed to get into this early. And another genetic... Condition which is not all that common, but actually does affect maybe 5% of people, is hyperhidrosis. And that's a condition that Felicity and I have discussed. It can run in families, and when it does, uh, you then have to check your other relatives. But this is a condition that you see on the surface. This isn't something you go digging at with tests and imaging studies and blood tests Hyperhidrosis is excessive sweating, and it's excessive sweating on both sides of the body. It's most common in the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet, and this comes on usually at a young age, and it's horrible. It's it's emotionally destructive. Uh, When it hits the teenage years, you're looking to have relationships with the opposite sex, you can't shake somebody's hand. You can't have a, a paper that you're writing or reading without soaking it. So there are a lot of uh, really uncomfortable things that come from this. And at a certain point, people just get fed up with this and they just can't do it anymore. And there are several treatments out there. Botox is out there. Botox lasts for a little while. There are lasers that we're now using. their surgery that can actually fix it, and it changes people's lives.
2: Yeah. I wish I'd listened to you earlier, David. My um, my mom had it. It was like... Do you remember that Narnia character, that C.S. Lewis character named Puddleglum? He was like part Marsh Wiggle. He was a Marsh Wiggle. And his hands, he was just always sort of wet. My mom was like Puddleglum. But One of my daughters had it, and I kept sort of poo-pooing it and going, oh, gosh, it's all right. No, you can't get surgery. No, you can't do anything. And um, to David's credit, she finally went to him and went, I can't do it because she couldn't hold papers. Like you said, she wouldn't hold hands. It was just, it was finally when she called me up in tears in her 20s. She went, I have to get something done. And I finally went, all right, we'll go with David's suggestion, which he had made years earlier. And she just had the surgery and um, it changed her life. I know something as simple as your hands are dripping, you wouldn't think it changed her life, but it has changed her life. It changes how she uses her body. It changes how she is around people. And it's um, a fairly simple surgery. And you found us that great surgeon, David, I can't remember his name. And he came in and really opened my eyes when I was just taking to surgery. He said, there's so much shame associated with this thing and people can't help it because they think there's just something wrong with them. You know, I'm nervous, I'm this, it's social anxiety, I'm, I've got to meditate. And he said, no, it's a medical condition. No shame should be on it. You can just get it dealt with and it's super easy.
0: Can I ask you, Felicity, how did she navigate all of those years? You know, you have to hide stuff. Yeah. What did she do? What did she do to get that? You are now, in retrospect, go, oh, that's why she did that. Oh, that's why she did that. But it must have been conscious every day, planning, I'm going to be here. I have to do this. What was that like? That's got to be insane.
2: It is insane. And now that you're right, now that I look back, I go, oh, that's why she sits like this. And she sits a certain way. And that's why she wears those kind of clothes so she can put her hands on her you're on her pants and have them be absorbent. And my daughter's an actress, and that's why she moves that way on stage and uses her hands that way on stage. And, you know, when she meets a new group of people, she has her hands in her pockets. It really affected her. It's
0: So is I she mean, relearning? Is she relearning how to behave? Because she's had 20-some years of behaving when somebody comes in, your hands are in your pocket. Yeah. Does it change, change your behavior?
2: Yeah, she did. She said she keeps waiting for it to come back. It keeps being like that phantom thing of here it comes, I have to hide my hand. And the surgeon who did her surgery brilliantly said, "You, it's going to be phantom sweating. And you'll have this anxiety if it's coming back, it's coming back. So um, yeah, her perspective has certainly changed in terms of how she greets the world.
1: There is a nuance to this surgery. And that is that when they ablate the nerve that's responsible for inciting these sweat glands, and it stops in the palms and it stops in the soles, there may be some hyperactivity in the nerve root below it or above it, and you may then get some sweating in areas like the chest. It's never as bad. It's not in any visible area. Um, But that can also happen. But the people that have gone through this are willing to take that risk
0: because their day-to-day life is so impacted otherwise felicity i gotta ask you was this one of those like i can see again i can see again it was a surgery it's over she wakes up and goes oh my god it's already like it was instant
2: it was instant it was instant i mean she woke up and went feel my hand feel my hand and then you know i wheeled her out and she just kept going okay, I'm going to get in the car, feel my hands. And when she reached for the car door, she was like, oh my God, this is such a different experience. And, you know, they said, David, I don't know if this is right, but, and this also made me feel better about fixing it. The surgeon said that the nerve is damaged already, which is why I keep sending out messages to sweat. And so they just go in and they don't even um, cut it. They just sort of clip it. Is that right? A partial clip. They don't, they don't do away with it completely because then you do get a lot of sweating in other areas. But when they just sort of clamp it, then it seems to have more mm, a balanced effect.
0: Incredible! After what she suffered for that long, and all of a sudden, see, it you was later. so simple. But it's interesting as a mom that you you poo poo it because you don't you don't once you put your toe in the water, then you got you got to deal with it in a big way, and you find out maybe it is surgery, which is a word you don't want to hear for your kid. Ever, you need to start making deals with God. So I I get it. So you were, you kept it at arm's length just because you didn't want to, you didn't want to anticipate where it could go.
2: Yeah. It's just seemed so extreme. And, you know, I wasn't educated about it, which is my bad. You know, I should have been like, wait a second. Once David years ago said hyperhidrosis, which I thought it was just sort of like put the word anxiety and add water on it. I was like, you're just anxious. I wish I'd done a little research and then I could have actually supported her. But yeah, you're right. I was like, wait, surgery? That's really serious. It's just, my mom dealt with it her whole life. You can deal with it.
0: Can I ask you something about personality and character? Because David is all about brain chemistry um, and how brain chemistry controls our behavior to a large extent. I I laughed because I saw that it, it was 15 years that you dated your husband on and off. And I you you had a reasonable explanation, as I recall. Number one, you said the man's currency goes up. Women's currency already goes down, and I wasn't ready necessarily to have my currency go down. Plus, I think then you gave statistics on first marriage, second marriage. So obviously <laughs> you're not a spur of the moment type of person. So David, I gotta ask, what is the, You're in the overthinker box as am, as am I. Okay. I'm still thinking of decisions from eighth grade that I should have made. But David, is that a serotonin? What is the brain chemistry involved in that? It's a serotonin
1: imbalance, and these neurotransmitters, the dopamine and the serotonin, when they become imbalanced, certain behaviors come out. So, as you said, Peter, overthinking things, going into the weeds uh, on solving a problem is very much an issue with serotonin. You're now, nodding.
0: That... You're nodding. You, you. That's you?
2: Yeah, that's so me. I have a serotonin imbalance. I'm going to learn so much.
1: Do you want some other bad news about some? something? Yeah, some other yeah tell me. So people that have a serotonin imbalance. Um, are really and pretty
2: and thin, but anyway, yes,
1: <laughs> yes. We're all hybrids, by the way. We all have imbalances on both sides, but there's generally a predominance of one. So here are some behaviors that go along with this uh, serotonin imbalance. Social anxiety is a big one. This idea of solving a problem down to the nth degree is a problem. The dopamine-imbalanced behaviors are the opposite of this. So a, someone that has a dopamine imbalance has no social anxiety. These are people that are looking for stimulation. They, they thrive on arousal and input. So if you're going into a new social situation where you don't know anybody, the person that has a serotonin imbalance is hiding under the covers. The person with the dopamine imbalance is getting dressed up and can't be more excited. So that's another one. The way we deal with anger has to do with our neurotransmitter imbalances. So people that are uh, imbalanced in their serotonin hold their anger in uh, until they don't. But uh, generally, you don't know if they're mad. Someone that has a dopamine imbalance is riding along next to you in a car on the freeway with a gun pointed at your head. So you know when the dopamine imbalanced is angry. Serotonin imbalance people, as I said, hold it in. Serotonin people are not risk takers. They're very risk averse. Whereas someone with a dopamine imbalance, because it's a chance for arousal and stimulation, they're far more the on the dopamine side of the equation. You see somebody jumping out of an airplane with a parachute on their back. Their serotonin levels are just fine. It's their dopamine issues that are the problem. There are a number of different behaviors. The way we eat, people with a serotonin imbalance are, eat to soothe. People with a dopamine imbalance eat to stimulate. So you have people that have a dopamine imbalance and they stay up late and they're eating into the night. They stay up because they don't want to miss anything. Whereas a serotonin-imbalanced person, they both can get fat and overweight, but for different reasons. Does that resonate?
2: Yes. I actually want you to do a little worksheet because it makes me feel so much better. Again, much like the hyperhidrosis, you think it's a character flaw as opposed to just I have a serotonin imbalance. You know, I thought it was just that I'm a wasp and I'm, you know, my ability to hold a grudge is Serbian. I'm like, a thousand years ago, you did this, (laughs) that... You know, I'm risk averse. I mean, literally, my poor husband, literally, we take, we're like, let's go on a weekend away. And we just pick a place. And we're driving up to the hotel. And I'm literally like, no, no, I don't like it here. I don't like it here. Keep driving, keep driving. He's like, wait, the valet is at my door. I'm like, no, no, just keep driving. I mean, my poor husband has to put up with it all the time. He's like, can we we just make a decision and stick with it? Seriously, I want you to make a little, like, Well, I'm gonna
1: I'm gonna do better than that. I'm gonna send you for free a twenty six dollar book that will explain all of this to
0: you. David's book override. It's fascinating. You You will you'll blow your mind every chapter. It's an explanation for
1: why we behave the way we behave, which is all based on this brain chemistry. You see this in normal behavior. You see this in addictive behavior. You see this in every behavioral malady that we try to treat. And again, I think what's interesting about this, which is what provoked me to do this, is that you blame yourself. People blame themselves for being different or for not being able to express their anger or not be able to take a risk or not be able, or on the opposite side of the fence, you know, why is it, that I'm willing to jump out of an airplane when I can kill myself. And why is it that when I get angry, I can't control my anger? Why can't I count to ten, as everyone has been telling me to do? So the book will go into that. There's a little test in the book. I don't think we think we just gave you the test, but there's a little test in the beginning of the book. It's very simple and it will identify whether you are more on the dopamine imbalanced or serotonin imbalanced side. And then in the book, we go through all these different things that we do uh, behaviorally and how it affects our relationships. I know Bill well, and I have a feeling that Bill is on the other side of the equation.
0: And he totally
2: you... is. That's my husband, Bill. He's totally a dopamine guy. He's walking into a party and he's like, This is awesome.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 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 and I'm with you. I am so like what I do for a living is radio, uh, out there, and yet. At a party, people think I'm stuck up. I'm standing in the corner because somebody aggresses you. I'm so happy, so happy to be (laughs) talked to. And why would you talk to me? There's no reason to talk to me. I've never really sat back when David's done this and gone, wait a minute. I do. When I explode, I explode. But I hold it all in. And when you said the grudge for 800 years, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's minor paleolithic. I mean, they go back (laughs) to the first upright man and finding a fire. You know what I mean? That bastard. So, and you can't help, you, you, you think you're going to change it. So you consciously say to yourself, oh, yeah, starting tomorrow, and I got all these lists, because I'm a list maker, and I'm nothing gets done for, all right, tomorrow, I'll do it. Well, no, tomorrow, really, starting tomorrow, starting tomorrow, mister. So it's so powerful. Felicity, go back to your relationship with Bill. I mean, this will explain some of
1: his behavior that drives you nuts. It would also explain to him some of your behavior that drives him nuts. And a perfect example, um, Chanel and I are similar. I'm more Bill. Chanel's more Felicity. And so Chanel and I go to buy a car. And I'm I'm coming out of there with the car. I'm not going to – if I see the car and it's close enough, I, I want to get the car. Chanel will say – no, 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 we should look around. We, there's probably a better deal out there, and this isn't really the color you wanted, Or, I, but I'm impatient, I can't wait. So those things that would normally make you want to slug them, if you understand where this is coming from, and it's coming from up above, these are all genetically given traits. Your neurochemistry, your where the levels of your serotonin and dopamine come from, uh, they come from above and they're all stored in the funniest place in this story, in the, in the small intestine and where the appendix sits, it's the junction between the small intestine and the colon is called the cecum. So there's this two inch organelle in our body that's running the show, that's making you have less serotonin, uh, Bill have less dopamine, and those things are built in. That's your microbiome. It's who you are.
2: And let me ask you two other things, which is one, do you feel like it's gender specific? And two, you probably address this in your book. Do you find that there are non-medical ways of balancing your brain?
1: Oh, yes. There are non-medical ways because you can supplement your deficiencies in serotonin, their foods, their supplements, there are certain behaviors that you can do to to sort of quench the anxiety that comes along with a, a low serotonin level. Like exercise. What? Well, like exercise. If you exercise, you're going to generate endorphins that are going to stick around for 18 hours and your anxiety levels are going to go down. It's all pretty fascinating. And I think a very important part of this conversation with us and in the book is that it. It educates you about the other people in your life. If you're in a work situation and you can't stand your boss or you're, you can't stand your employee, it can go either way, uh, or or a fellow employee. And if you just think of it in these terms, you're
0: less likely to be angry with their behavior once you understand it. By the way, when David said exercise, you did a lot of triathlons.
2: I did the running part of the triathlon. So there's the Celebrity section where you get to come on with a team of three: someone swims, someone bikes, and someone runs. And so I just did a bunch of years of the run.
0: But still, and how do you still run? No, I blew
2: my my knees are. I blew my knees out, so that's a sad thing that I had to say goodbye to. Because boy, talk about chilling you out. I mean, David, you know you're a runner. There's nothing like a run. You're kind of good for the rest of the day. Except you're a dopamine guy, so I don't know what running did for you.
1: <laughs> no, I'm a meniscus injury guy so I'm not running like I used to but yes nothing nothing was as good as the running
2: yeah but if you're dopamine if you're deficient in dopamine what does running give you
1: okay so there is a nuance to this people that have the serotonin imbalances are not as scheduled they can't keep to a schedule as well people that have a dopamine imbalance. They are very good about keeping a schedule. Part of that is self-preservation because their brains are a little scattered. The people that have um, ADHD, it's a, it's a dopamine imbalance. Why in the world would you give a little kid in your classroom that's running around and upsetting everybody else, why would you give that kid a stimulant? And the stimulants are dopamine. So all these products are, are dopamine. And by filling their tank with dopamine, then the kids can calm down and they can focus. And But I think for that reason, because the serotonins amongst us depend on a regular schedule to keep their life intact.
2: And how does menopause affect this imbalance? Because I'm 60 and I'm way past menopause.
1: Menopause doesn't affect the imbalance. It affects oh. your behavior in different ways. And where those imbalances come in is how you react to those behavioral changes. So, yeah. um, as an example, people that have a serotonin imbalance tend to be more hypochondriacal. Uh, they tend to focus on their health. They and they again they micro focus. So they have a headache. Well, from that that's not a headache. I have a brain cancer, and I'm going to go into Google. And now they have a brain cancer, and They have some infection in there. So whatever it is, whereas people that are dopamine imbalanced, um, they don't pay so much attention to their (laughs) health. They sort of ignore that part of it. Uh, And so where this comes in in menopause, if you're having the typical symptoms of menopause, they might be a little exaggerated. So it, it does come in indirectly. Well, thank you.
2: This was really fun. Thank you very much. Thanks, David, for wanting me on your show. And thank you, Peter. And thank you, Lori.
1: Oh, this has been so, so nice.
2: Thanks, everybody. The information on bedside matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on bedside matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.